Hi there, this is Jo Morris reading Fierce Conversations by Susan Scott. Forward by Ken Blanchard. The notion that our lives succeed or fail one conversation at a time is at once commonsensical and revolutionary. It's commonsensical because all of us have had conversations that, for better or worse, profoundly altered our professional or personal lives. It is revolutionary because a course on conversations won't be found in an MBA curriculum. Yet who among us hasn't spent time and energy cleaning up the aftermath of a significant but failed conversation? Who among us hasn't recognised, perhaps too late, that a client was frustrated or a loved one wounded because we failed to engage in the conversations that were needed? By the same token, most of us have left a successful conversation clicking our heels at the outcome, eagerly anticipating the next one. While success is often measured by an accumulation of titles, acquisitions and the financial bottom line, little or no attention is paid to the power of each conversation to move us toward or away from our stated business and life goals. No longer. Susan Scott set out to help us change our lives, one conversation at a time. If you don't have time to read the whole book, it's a mistake. But since God didn't make junk and you are unconditionally loved, I will hold back on a one-minute reprimand. And as a humanist, I will go one step further and give you the essence of this powerful book. Here's what it says. Our lives succeed or fail gradually, then suddenly, one conversation at a time. While no single conversation is guaranteed to change the trajectory of a career, a business, a marriage or a life, any single conversation can. The conversation is the relationship. This book will help you gain the insight and skills to make every conversation count. Are you ready? Introduction. The idea of fierce. When you think of a fierce conversation... Think passion, integrity, authenticity, collaboration. Think cultural transformation. Think leadership. When she was seven, my niece, Margot, called to announce what she had, that she had just had an apostrophe. You know, an idea with shiny lights around it. She meant epiphany, but I've always liked the idea of having apostrophes. And my hope is that as you read this book, you'll enjoy an apostrophe at the very least a semicolon, maybe even an exclamation point about the connection between conversations and your success and happiness, about the connection between conversations and leadership. I want you to get really good at fierce conversations. But before we go into into the how, the seven principles, it's important that you understand why. Picture a kaleidoscope. Do you remember the first time you held one up to the light and turned it? When one piece inside the kaleidoscope shifted, the entire picture changed. And once that happened, you couldn't dial back to the picture you had before. The three ideas I want to share with you in this introduction have been like kaleidoscopic pieces that when they shifted, changed my view of the world and of myself in the world and therefore what is required of me. Once my view, my understanding shifted, it wasn't possible to return to conversations that I'd known them. Idea number one. My first apostrophe arrived courtesy of Ernest Hemingway in The Sun Also Rises. A character drinking with friends in a bar is asked, how did you go bankrupt? He answers, gradually, then suddenly. 
At the time I'd read this, I'd been reading think tanks, running think tanks for chief executives for 13 years and had had more than 10,000 hours of conversations with industry leaders worldwide. I thought back over important events in the lives of my clients. A piece within my kaleidoscope dropped. Our careers, our companies, our relationships and indeed our very lives succeed or fail. Gradually, then suddenly, one conversation at a time. On the failing side, sometimes the questions were, how did we manage to lose our biggest customer, the one that counted for 20% of our net profit? How did I lose my most valued employee for whom I had great plans? How did I lose the cohesiveness of my team? Why are we experiencing turnover, turf wars, rumours, departments not cooperating with one another, unengaged employees, long overdue reports and projects, strategic plans that still aren't off the ground, Why do we have so many reasons and excuses for things not being different or better than they are? And on a personal note, how did I lose an 18-year marriage that I was not prepared to lose? How did I lose my job? How is it that I find myself in a company, a role, a relationship, a life from which I've absented my spirit? How did I lose my way? How did I get here? Once the members of my CEO groups reflected on the path that led them to a disappointing or difficult point and place in time, they remembered, often in vivid detail, the conversations that set things in motion, ensuring that they would end up exactly where they found themselves. They lost that customer, that employee, the cohesiveness of their team, their marriage, their joy. One failed or one missing conversation at a time. In fact, it was often the missing conversations for which they were paying the greatest price. The conversations they avoided for days, weeks, months, even years that caused the most devastation. So many times I've heard people say, I knew our strategy wasn't working, but no one was willing to tell our CEO. No one wanted to lose their job. Or, I knew that customer was unhappy, but I didn't have the guts to come right out and ask. Or, we never addressed the real issue, never came to terms with reality. Or, My wife and I never stated our needs. In the end, there were so many things we needed to talk about. The wheels came off the car. On the positive side, here was pretty amazing when a company finally landed that huge customer, the one their competition would kill for, or successfully recruited a valuable new employee, or a leader discovered that her team was committed to her at a deep level, or a team blew their goals out of the water, or a couple celebrated another happy year of marriage. They got to these good places in their lives, these amazing achievements, these satisfying career paths, these terrific relationships, gradually, then suddenly, one successful conversation at a time. And they were determined to ensure the quality of their ongoing conversations with the people central to their success and happiness. Imagine you're standing on a game board, the game of life. Your life. How did you arrive at this square on the board? with all of your current results, professional and personal, spread out in front of you. Some you like and some you don't. You arrived here one conversation at a time. And when you project yourself into an ideal future, how will you get from here to there? Same way you got here. One conversation at a time. But what is a fierce conversation? Most people would agree that conversations are important, that If conversations fail, it's a big fail. But why fierce? Doesn't fierce suggest menacing, cruel, barbarous, threatening? Sounds like raised voices, frowns, blood on the floor. No fun at all. 
In Roger's thesaurus, however, the word fierce has the following synonyms. Robust, intense, strong, powerful, passionate, eager, unbridled, uncurbed, untamed. In its simplest form, a fierce conversation is one in which we come out from behind ourselves into the conversation and make it real. This book was constructed as an imaginary conversation with you, the reader. With me doing most of the talking, being as real with you as I know how to do, and you doing most of the listening. (laughs) Sorry about that part. Fierce conversations have four objectives, which we'll cover in depth throughout this book, along with the meaning of real. Number one interrogate reality. Number two, provoke learning. Number three, tackle our toughest challenges. Number four, enrich relationships. The fourth objective, enrich relationships, points to the next kaleidoscope piece. Idea number two. Years ago, I heard Yorkshire-born poet and author David White speak at a conference. David spoke of the young man newly married who's often frustrated, even a little irritated, that his lovely spouse, to whom he has pledged his troth and with whom he hopes to spend the rest of his life, seemingly wants to talk, yet again, about the same thing they just talked about last night, last weekend. The topic? The quality of their relationship. He wonders, why are we talking about this again? I thought we settled this. Could we just have one huge conversation about our relationship and then coast for a year or two? Apparently not, because here she is. Around age 42, if he's been paying attention, David suggested, it dawns on him. David smiled. He was 42 and married. This ongoing conversation I've been having with my wife is not about the relationship. The conversation is the relationship. To say that this landed with me would be an understatement. The idea was simple, even obvious. But I had missed the formula. Apostrophe number two. Conversation equals relationship. As the idea dropped, my internal kaleidoscope shifted. I had just left a long-term marriage and was deeply sad. I felt David was talking just to me and learned later that all 400 people in the room, most of whom were men, felt the same way. We all had a strong desire to run out into the parking lot and phone home. If you recognise that there may be something to this, that the conversation is the relationship, then if the conversation stops, or if we add another topic to the list of things we just can't talk about because it would wreck another meeting, another weekend, all of the possibilities for the relationship become smaller and the possibilities for the individuals in the relationship become smaller as well. Until one day we overhear ourselves in mid-sentence, making ourselves quite small, behaving as if we're just the space around our shoes, engaged in yet another three-minute conversation so empty of meaning that it crackles. This is a seriously big deal. Our most valuable currency is not money, nor is it intelligence, attractiveness, fluency in three-letter acronyms or the ability to write code or analyse a P&O statement. Our most valuable currency is relationship, emotional capital. In 2002, the Nobel Prize for Economics was awarded to Daniel Kahneman, a psychology professor at Princeton. Why, you might ask, would the global economics community award the Nobel Prize to a psychologist? Because Kahneman's studies prove beyond any doubt that we behave emotionally first, rationally second. 
No matter how logical we claim to be, our emotions are the most powerful factor in how we respond and interact with others. This is not a girl thing. It's not a cultural thing. This is the human condition and the implications are significant and costly if we don't get this right.